All right, let's take our Bibles uh, for the last time ever. Now, I think we'll probably preach from this again. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John. We will be finishing our series in 1 John tonight, Lord willing. And uh, so this will be the 54th message, if I've been keeping track properly. And tonight we're actually going to look at the last two verses. 1 John chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. But let's, uh, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read the first four, or the last four verses of chapter 5, even though we will only look at the last two. But our scripture reading will be verses uh, 18, 19, 20, and 21. Please follow along as I read. The Bible says, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself... And that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we're so very grateful for the blessing of being able to read your word and study it, knowing that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And now uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for us right here, right now, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness that every single believer may be perfectly, truly furnished and equipped to every good work. So Lord, equip us tonight through the preaching of the Word. Enlighten our eyes to the revelation you have in your Word. And Lord, help us to obey this simple challenge to keep ourselves from idols. And we ask your blessing tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. And you may be seated. Let's take our hymnals to hymn number 99. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Hymn 99. I don't think it is, yeah. But that tune is very familiar. I know know the song, but we have uh, 99 is a a different song. So let me just see. Would you you know what the name of it is or how some of it goes? Sometimes they have two songs of the same song. Oh, right, 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 right. Let me just check. The the tune is very familiar that Mm -hmm. she's playing. It's only in here once. Jane, can you think of any of the words to that song you're playing? Okay. <laughs> oh, it's okay. Well, I got an idea. Keep keep looking. I'll be back. Okay. for the idle time here. <laughs> Give us a few minutes. I don't, I don't see the song that we are looking for here, Jane. Is there, it's, it's a different tune that we have in our, in our hymn book, 99, so it's probably different in the living hymns. So uh, is there another song that you know offhand? I'm going to try something that we've never tried before. All right, Jane, start playing it. Just play it, that song. Yeah, yeah.
<laughs> We've never done this before. There's an app called Shazam. Yeah. And it it'll tell you what the song is. This is the romantic love song number one. <laughs> we might need to pick another song. Sorry, I really thought this was gonna work. It yeah. Okay, you know what, Jane? What's that? I know I have had two. Shame on me for not knowing it. What's that? Right. Amen. Springs of living water for right now. And we'll figure him 369. And then we'll figure out for the last song. We'll come up with something. <laughs> oh, I get you. That's good. I thirsted in the barren land of sin and shame, and nothing satisfying there I found. But to the blessed cross of Christ one day I came, where springs of living water did abound. Drinking at the springs of living water, happy now am I, my soul they satisfy. Drinking at the springs of living water, oh, wonderful and bountiful supply. How sweet the living water from the hills of God, it makes me glad and happy all the way. Now, glory, grace, and blessing mark the path I've trod, I'm shouting hallelujah every day. Drinking at the springs of living water. Happy now am I, my soul they satisfy. Drinking at the springs of living water. Oh, wonderful and bountiful supply. On the last. Oh, sinner, won't you come today to Calvary? A fountain there is flowing deep and wide. Savior now invites you to the water free, where thirsting spirits can be satisfied. Drinking at the springs of living water, happy now am I, my soul they satisfy. Drinking at the springs of living water, oh wonderful and bountiful supply. Amen. Well, I do not usually bring my phone to the pulpit, and that's why I ran back to get that. And I just want you to know that my wife is enjoying our confusion up here. She's having a great time. <laughs> and then she says, the mic is picking up your dominant singing and all your mistakes. I don't think I like having a phone up here. <laughs> all right, let's take our Bibles, turn to First John. And uh, we tried. We gave it our best shot. Amen. Thank you. All right, let's First John chapter five. First John chapter five. And um, we're looking at the last two verses. They are connected. Uh, we connect. We did talk about verse twenty last week, but um, let me just read this to you. That again, verse twenty and twenty-one, and then we'll bow again in prayer. I want you to uh, be praying. Uh, we knew this this morning, but I wasn't sure I had the liberty to, to share this, but I do. Uh, Gore has COVID uh, pretty bad, and then uh, Sweetie also, I believe, has it. So please pray for them. A bunch of people are sick. My wife doesn't have COVID, but she's battling major coughing, and um, there's a whole list of people that are sick. So please keep uh, everyone in prayer. Uh, Serena's also asked us and reminded us to be praying for Pat Sinino, who had surgery but is uh, recovering, long road to recovery, and her pancreas is still not settled down. Keep Ethan in prayer, and uh, my mother-in-law as well. So let's let's bow in prayer. Who Who's that? Oh, sweetie's baby, Hatir. Okay, all right, we'll be praying. Let's pray now. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you are omnipotent. Thank you that you are omniscient, and, and that... Your ears are attentive to the prayers, our prayers. Father, we want to lift up these folks that are sick. I'm sure I didn't mention all of them. Uh, but Lord, we pray for each one of them, that you would tend to them, 
that you would grant healing where it is needed. Give grace and patience uh, for Pasanino, for Ethan, and uh, Serena Lord as well, and, and several others. We pray for you to touch their bodies and grant them healing, restoration. And Father, we pray for those that are battling sickness. I pray for my mother-in-law as well, that you would please sustain her and give her good days, Lord. Give her days where she feels strong and invigorated and is able to have more energy. And then we pray um, for those that are battling temporary sicknesses, that you would just tend to them and minister to them and restore them to good health. Father, thank you that you are our God. Uh, who invites us to boldly enter into your throne that we may uh, receive grace, mercy, and grace to help in time of need. And Father, those times of need are often and regular. We need you, and without you we can do nothing. So Lord, I pray that you would tend to our congregation. Thank you, Lord, so much for Wednesday. And um, though we didn't have many here, Father, uh, the people that joined us online was, uh, I think, more than we've ever had for a business meeting. And I'm just so grateful for the Spirit and um, so grateful, Father, for the people that, um, for for Dave doing the treasury and Charlie and their leadership. And I'm just so grateful, Father, for the diligent work of these, of these folks. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would bless Bible Baptist Church. Just meet our needs. Help us to glorify you. Lord, help us uh, to be more effective in reaching our community. And we're grateful for this presence online. We pray that it is effective, that your word is going forth, but that we would see fruit that remains. And we ask your blessing now uh, on the scriptures. Pray for Gore. Uh, Lord, I think of Gore and Sweetie as well, that you would please heal them. And I think Portia might be sick, Lord, again, to just so many. We just lift them all to you. We love these folks. We know that you love them. And we pray that, that you would be with them in a very special way. Please bless your word now. Give us understanding of the scriptures. Help them to be applied to our lives. That we would be closer to you at the end of this service than we were in the beginning. And we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 21, the last verse of 1 John 5 is a simple, short exhortation Little children, and this is not a new, this is an affectionate term. John is a very elderly man right now. And he's, and he's writing to the many young and younger believers that uh, he has discipled, that he has spiritually fathered, that you know, he, he is the John the Elder. And many people look to him and now he's writing and he says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And for, for many years... I saw that verse as in and of itself. But the more I've been studying it, and it's the great thing about uh, studying verse by verse and looking at chapter, the whole, the whole you know, uh, expository preaching is, I realize that this verse really flows from verse 20. And if you want to understand verse 21, you've got to look at verse 20 because they are contrasting. We know, look at verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and have given us an understanding. Now look at this. This is where he says that we may know Him that is true. And we are in Him that is true. Even in His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true. You see this word? True, the true. This is He that is Him that is true. Him that is true. This is the true God and eternal life. Then he says, my little children or little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now one commentator, uh, an old commentator, made this observation that these two verses are the last of a multitude of contrasts which fill the epistle of 1 John. There's, there's The whole text as we've been going through it is filled with contrasts. We have light and darkness, beginning in chapter 1. We have truth 
and falsehood. We have love and hate. God and the world. Christ and the Antichrist. Life and death. Doing righteousness versus doing sin. The children of God and the children of the devil. The spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We've been going through all of them as we've been going verse by verse. And we've been seeing these contrasts just constantly. And now at the close, we have uh, what is, in that age, what was an ever-present and pressing contrast between the true God and idols. Now we're going to understand that John wrote, most likely John wrote this epistle when he was in Ephesus. And that's very significant because Ephesus was known for its idolatry. And so a lot of his audience, especially the would have, would have been the first ones to receive this, were the Ephesian believers. And so he is contrasting in verse 20 the true God versus the many, many gods, small g, that bombarded these believers. And clearly, uh, he was challenging, challenging them about that. So we want to see three things tonight. First, the admonition against idolatry. That's what, you know, what is John saying when he says, keep yourselves from idols? Then we're going to see the affront of, of idolatry. Why is idolatry so offensive to God? And it is. And then thirdly, we're going to see the application of idolatry. And as is with most issues in Scripture, you have the surface issue, and then you have the heart of the issue. And we'll see this term primarily when the word idolatry is used in Scripture. It is most often talking exactly uh, what the Ephesians and the, the city of Ephesus had in abundance. Idols. And uh, so we're going to talk about that. First, let's just jump right in. Once you go all the way back to the Ten Commandments. Remember where the Ten Commandments are? In fact, let me throw this out. A little trivia here. Um, who can tell me there's two passages in the Old Testament that list for us the Ten Commandments? Anybody name one of them? Just write out loud. Jim. Exodus 20. Exodus 20. That's the first one. The most, that's the one we go to most often. John. Leviticus. No, but good, good guess. Good guess. In fact, some of the commandments are in Leviticus. So, yeah, but, but the one, one through ten. John. Deuteronomy chapter. Yes, Deuteronomy chapter five. So Deuteronomy five, Exodus twenty gives us the list. So we're going to look at the one here in um, Exodus chapter twenty. So take your Bibles, go to Exodus chapter twenty, because we're just going to look at the first few. The first two. Yeah, the first two commandments take up six verses, and they they are all addressing the same thing. Idolatry. The first one, in fact, if you didn't get the handout that we handed out in our Bible study, where we handed out a picture, the Ten Commandments in picture. So there's a one, a two, a three, all the way to ten, with a picture that correlates to the commandment. And it is the easiest, the quickest way to memorize the Ten Commandments. And if, you're, if you don't have the Ten Commandments memorized, uh, I'll get you a copy of that. And, and you, in literally days, you can memorize the Ten Commandments. And I encourage you to do that. Because knowing the Ten Commandments is one of the great is a great soul winning tool to bring conviction. We talked about that in Sunday school. So we're going to just talk about the first two, the first two commandments, which is the basis for this challenge of John in First John five twenty one. Look at Exodus chapter twenty, Exodus twenty, and beginning. Well, verse one says, "God spake all these words, saying." So beginning in verse two through verse six. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. 
Now those are those are the first two commandments. So if, if you if if you ask someone what are the first two commandments and say, and I want I want them all spelled out, every every word, they're probably just gonna say, Well, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Say, Well, that's the condensed version. That's the cliff notes. What's the whole commandment part? And that's verses two through six. But it's all important because God is is giving us information of why these two commands, not to have any gods before me, and not to make a graven image, why it's so important. So let's look at it again. Verse 2, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. God is saying, I am the one that did this. I'm the one that delivered you. I'm the one that met your needs. I'm the one that delivered you out of bondage. Therefore, verse 3, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Commandment 1. Commandment 2, verse 4. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And then follow up. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. Why? For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. There we find it. Why doesn't God want us having other gods, small g? Why does God not want us having graven images and bowing down to them? Because He wants our hearts. He wants all of us. And when you and I set up idols, whether they be statues or other things that take the place of God, That is a great offense to our God. So the admonition of keep yourselves from idols, understand, again, it was written while in Ephesus, and so most commentators, it's pretty pretty likely that John was primarily talking about literally the idols of their day. Uh, Let me read to you some sources, um, archaeological sources and sources that tell us about the city that this was written in and that this would have applied to. It says, The danger of idolatry was especially serious in Ephesus, again, which is where John likely wrote this epistle, because it was the center of the worship of Artemis. Now, Artemis was a Greek god, small g. It is the same god that the Romans called Diana. Do you remember that? In fact, a few decades earlier, and we read about this in Acts chapter 19, Verses 23 through 41, uh, Paul uh, caused quite a stir because when he's preaching, people got saved and it literally affected the bottom line of the idol makers who, uh, again, you've got to understand Ephesus, one of the ancient wonders, one of the wonders of the ancient world was the temple of Diana. And you know where it was? In Ephesus. And not only that, but they had stores, they had all kinds of groves and places where you could worship your idols. Uh, Many of their coins, uh, the Roman coins or the coins during that time, had their idols on them. They had something in Ephesus called the Ephesian letters, uh, or literally, the, um, they were, uh, well, let me just read, let me, there's three things about Ephesus I want to communicate. First of all, the temple of Diana was the center of immoral rites. The priests were called the, uh, the mega, the mega baz- busy. They were eunuchs. It was said by some that the goddess Diana or Artemis was so fastidious that she could not bear a real male near her. Hence the priests were, were eunuchs. Others said that the goddess was so lascivious that it was unsafe for any real male to approach her. One Greek philosopher, Hercolytus, who was a native of Ephesus, he was called the weeping philosopher. Now remember, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. And that's the more important one. This guy was called the weeping philosopher, for he had never been known to smile. And he talked about the darkness of the temple of Diana. He said that, when you approached the altar of the temple, there was a, a darkness of vileness. 
He said that the morals of the temple were worse than the morals of the beasts, and that the inhabitants of Ephesus were fit only to be drowned, and that the reason that he could never smile was that he lived in the midst of such terrible uncleanness. Now, this probably was not a believer, but he was communicating uh, what would be maybe the world's perspective of the vileness, the wickedness, the immorality of this temple, which was dominant in Ephesus. The temple, secondly, had the right of asylum. In other words, any criminal uh, who could reach the temple of Diana was safe. And because of that, it became the hangout of criminals. Uh, in fact, Tacitus, a, a historian, accused Ephesus of protecting the crimes of men and calling it the worship of gods. To have anything to do with the Temple of Diana was to be associated with the very dregs of society. And then thirdly, uh, the Temple of Diana was the center of the sale of, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, the Ephesian letters, we're not talking about the book of Ephesians. That's what you and I think of, right? The Ephesian letters, or the Ephesia Grammata, is a series of verses that are put um, on, a, on a, like a charm, or an, it's an amulet, which really was like a good luck charm. And there were a bunch of words, a bunch of verses that made no sense. Nobody understood what they said. But apparently they believed that when you say the words and pronounce the syllables that they have special powers. It was all, in fact, uh, one commentator put this. He says, Ephesus was preeminently the city of astrology, sorcery, incantations, amulets, exorcisms, and every form of magical imposture. To have anything to do with the temple at Ephesus was to be brought into contact with commercialized superstition and the black arts. So everywhere you went, uh, in fact, if you were a believer that got saved and you were in Ephesus, most likely many of your friends, if you were not an idol worshiper, if you did not worship Diana, probably many of your friends and relatives did. And so it was very common in most of the houses that you would have gone into to have these idols. The ones that 20 years ago or several decades ago... uh, you know, that they, the artisans were, were making, and because all these people got saved, it affected their business. Well, they're still in business at this point here. And uh, so, understand that when, when John says this at the end, keep yourselves from idols, he is most likely really talking about the thing that was everywhere present for them. This was an admonition against idolatry. It's very easy, we see that in Israel, to be affected or infected by the culture that is around you. The worse that America becomes, and we have digressed as a nation in our morals, and the the more... We digress, the more sinful we become, the more wicked and evil we become as a nation, the bigger of a challenge for the believer not to be infected by that. How important that is. And so this challenge, folks, uh, is a challenge that is applicable to us. So let's, let's talk about why was idolatry so offensive to God? The worshiping of Diana, the worship of Artemis, this, you know, they had statues and they would sell them and people would pray to them and, and they had all these superstitions behind it. Why is that so offensive to God? Let's go back in the Old Testament to Isaiah 44. This is one of the most articulate statements from a prophet of God, really from the mouth of God, condemning and explaining what... Idolatry is. And it, it, it's, it's amusing for me to read this. And it's much like when Elijah was on Mount Carmel. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But if, uh, it's in Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44. But it's much like 
the tone of this text is much like when Elijah was on Mount Carmel. And I was going to spend some time there today, but I love that story. We've looked at that before. We could spend the whole time on Mount Carmel going over that. So we're not going to do that. I'll just make a reference to it. But if you remember that Elisha uh, was very um, sarcastic in mocking the small g gods of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal, they had a big showdown. Again, I'll talk about it in a minute. But he was very, not only condescending, but you can almost imagine him snickering. I can, at least. And I get this here. Look at Isaiah chapter 44, beginning of verse 9. Now God is talking about what they do. What is idolatry? They that make a graven image, verse 9 there, Isaiah 44, 9. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit, and they are their own witnesses. They see not, nor know, talking about the idols, that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a god, small g, or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed. And the workmen, they are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yea, they shall fear. And they shall be ashamed together. The smith, so the blacksmith, the, the one that forms these gods, the ones that got all upset, Uh, You know, when Paul was there preaching, the smith with the tongs, both worketh in the coals and fashion it with hammers, and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry, and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water, and is faint. The carpenter stretcheth out his rule. He marketh it out with a line. He fitteth it with planes, and he marketh it out with the compass, and maketh it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. (laughs) He heweth down him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourisheth it. Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will, he will take thereof and warm himself. Now understand, this is the God of heaven who created the universe, who gives us the trees and all these things that provide these services for men. And what does man do? He worships and serves the creature, the creation, not the creator. Understand, who's talking here? And I hope you get this. He is greatly offended at this. The, The same piece of wood that you warm yourself by, you then take great effort and you form a, a false idol and then you worship it. Verse 15, again, then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it, and he baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image and falleth down thereto. He burneth part thereof in the fire, and with part thereof he eateth the flesh. He he roasteth roast, and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself and saith, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. This is all sarcastic, folks. This is all... This is God taking offense that the glory and the worship that is due to him is being given to the things that he made for man to make use of. Look at verse 17. And the residue thereof he maketh a God, even his graven image. He falleth down unto it and worshipeth it and prayeth unto it and saith, Delivereth me, for thou art my God. They have not known nor understood for he shutteth their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. These are inanimate pieces of wood that these people are looking to for deliverance and for comfort and for worship. Verse 19. And none considereth in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned part of it in the fire, yea. Also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. And shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? He feedeth on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside, that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? God is looking at this and saying, You have created something you are worshiping that has no power at all. 
And he is highly offended by that. Martin Luther said this. Because basically, folks, a God, and what, what, what John is telling us is, be on guard for God substitutes. Again, go back to chapter 1 or, or Exodus 20, the first commandment. I am the Lord thy God that brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I am a jealous God. Now he deserves all the glory and the honor and praise. But when you and I begin to use things, we take a piece of wood and we carve it and we make in the form of a man, a person, and, and we give honor to that, that is so offensive to the God of heaven. Martin Luther said this. He said, those who do not trust God at all times and do not see God's favor and grace and goodwill toward them in everything they do and everything they suffer, in their living or in their dying, but seek His favor in other things or even in themselves, do not keep this first commandment to have no other gods before Him. Rather, they practice idolatry, even if they do, even if they were to do the works of all the rest of the commandments. In other words, this is a very offensive thing to our God. Because what we do, and what these folks do, is they are looking to something else to provide what only God can provide. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 4? Whosoever shall drink of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up unto eternal life. Two examples in the Old Testament. First, and you don't need to turn there. Um, these are very, I love these, these two situations. First one is in 1 Samuel chapter 5. If you want to look it up, first five verses, you can look at it. Uh, the um, Philistines, their false idol was called uh, Dagon, D-A-G-O-N. That was their false idol. And they had, um, they had built this idol in the temple, and two times God knocked it down to show them that there's only one true God. It's funny to me that they, he knocked it down twice. Like they, they didn't get the message the first time. You know, God clearly knocked that temple, that, that statue down, and they didn't get the message that, you know, this is just a stupid piece of stone. We're worshiping it. There is something bigger here. And then, of course, the great challenge that I mentioned earlier in 1 Kings 18, 19 through 40, is um, the prophet of Elijah, based on God's challenge, God's injunction, challenges the 450 prophets of Baal. Remember, God said, okay, Elijah, you get a, you get a um, sacrifice, put something on this altar. They're going to get a sacrifice and put it on this altar. And then let them go first and let them pray to their God. There's 450 of them. Pray to their God to come down and consume the sacrifice. And so they prayed all day long. Nothing happened. No fire from heaven. And, uh, and Elijah began to mock them. Hey, where's your God? You know, uh, And he didn't apologize if they were hurt or you know, offended because God is offended by their idolatry. And then it was Elijah's turn. But to make it more dramatic, God said, okay, go, go down to the river and pour water. And I forget how many buckets it was. You know, barrels just pour water all over the sacrifice so it is drenched. And then he called to the God of heaven. And as soon as he called, fire came down from heaven and devoured the sacrifice, devoured the water. I mean, it was just a clear demonstration of God's power. In those instances, folks, understand what motivated God to do that. He is giving a major demonstration that idolatry is an abomination to him because he takes it personal. You, you, somebody to... Worship something other than the living God. This is what Isaiah says, Isaiah 42 and verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, 
and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Graven images are not the way to worship God. He makes it very clear. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 7, Paul said, Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Then in verse 14, he says, basically, what's that, John? It was 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 7. Uh huh. And then verse 14, he basically repeats or says what John says in 1 John 5.21. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. John said, keep yourselves from idols. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul is talking about what happened when the gospel came to Thessalonica. And he said, for they themselves, in fact, the word got out. When, they, when the Thessalonians got saved, it was the talk of the town. And word came back to Paul. And he says, they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how that ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. See, it's not just a matter of forsaking these dead, inanimate objects that you're worshiping, but you are turning to the living God. How important that is. There was a story out of Japan from back in the 1500s. A Japanese warlord by the name of Hideyoshi uh, ruled over Japan in the 1500s. And he commissioned a colossal statue of Buddha for a shrine in Kyoto. It took 50,000 men five years to build. And the work had scarcely been finished when the great earthquake of 1596 brought the roof of the shrine crashing down and wrecked the statue. The story is said that in a rage, Hideyoshi shot an arrow at the fallen statue and screamed at it. I put you here at great expense. And you can't even look after your own temple. I love that. That's like Dagon, you know? It's exactly what happened with Dagon where God looks at these things, he's offended by them, and just like that he destroys them. Just like the prophets of Baal. To show them, this is utter foolishness. You worship anything except me, the living God. And you are committing idolatry. Now, the admonition to, to John or John's writing in 1 John 5.21, most likely addressing the issue of real idolatry, worshiping idols. The affront is that it offends God that you would worship His creation instead of Him, the Creator. But there's also an application for us for today. The issues of the heart. Two times in Paul's writing, one in Ephesians, one in Colossians. Listen to what he tells the, Coloss- or the Ephesians. He says, For this ye know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Notice what he said. No covetous man which is an idolater. He says the same thing in Colossians 3 and verse 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. So two times Paul says, covetousness is idolatry. In other words, because what is covetousness? Remember, well that goes back to the commandment, Anybody remember which commandment is thou shalt not covet from this morning's pictures? Ten. Very good. Yeah, that's easy enough, right? And what does he do? He doesn't just say don't covet. He says don't covet your neighbor's wife, don't cover your neighbor. And he lists all these things because he does not want us replacing him with anything else. In fact, that's not an exhaustive list. Anything that takes away our affection, anything that replaces God is an idol. Anything we covet is an idol. When I got saved, I listened to different kind of music than I listen to now. And um, but when I got saved, one of the one of the bands that I really liked 
the lead um, writer in the in the group uh, would always write about his journey, his spiritual journey. And around the same time I got saved, he got saved. I want to share you his his testimony because it's it's somewhat interesting. And I remember hearing it years ago. It says by by 1977 he was 20, a 28-year-old musician and he had achieved superstardom. His homegrown rock band had achieved international acclaim for songs that he wrote. He was the main song writer. He had wealth, he had fame, he had a good marriage, and his band's songs were played on virtually every FM radio station, rock station in America and around the world. They had become America's premier rock band. And so he would write about his, his journey. Fame, success, and, and wealth. Fame, success, and wealth. And achievement. He had reached it all. He said, I arrived at the epitome. Everything that, that most young people and all, I had arrived at fame, fortune. And he said, I know I was totally empty. Totally empty. In fact, he looked at the top of the mountain and he said, is this all there is? He says, although confirmed in the Lutheran church as a child, he had no relationship with Christ, only a knowledge of Christianity, which he had rejected as a religion for extremists. In fact, he said this, a Christian was either a hypocrite who went to church on Sundays as a social maneuver, or a wild-eyed Jesus freak who fanatically threw tracks at people in the street and told them they were going to fry in hell. That was his opinion. Listen to what he said. He said, he became inoculated with just enough Christianity to have become immune to the real thing. That's a, that's a pretty interesting statement. He became inoculated with, he had just enough Christianity, very weak, that it made him, that it inoculated him against the real thing. And he got into all these different Eastern religions and Worshipped all these different false gods. And, and they all left him empty. Until he came to Jesus Christ. I close with this. In fact, this is a quote from the book. Your father loves you. He says, what other gods could we have besides the Lord? Plenty. For Israel, there were the Canaanite Baals. Those jolly natured gods whose worship was a rampage, rampage of gluttony, drunkenness, and ritual prostitution. By the way, much of, of uh, the worship of Diana was the same way. For us, there are still great gods, small g. Sex, shekels, and stomach, an unholy trinity constituting one god, self, and the other enslaving trio, pleasure, possessions, and position, whose worship is described as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, in 1 John 2.16. And then there's also football, the firm, and family are also gods for some. I like that. This guy just kind of, he he's obviously a preacher because he's alliterated them all. He said, indeed, the list of other gods is endless. For anything that anyone allows to run his life becomes his god. And they are multitude. In fact, somebody once said, today's idols are more in the self than on the shelf. And I like that. So I want to ask you something. Are there any substitutes in your life? Is there anything on the throne of your heart where God should be? Something that has taken away your affection and distracted you so that you can worship God? You look to things, you look to something else. Something else, if you're honest, means more to you than your relationship with Jesus Christ. That is an idol. Folks, in our day, this list this man made is right on target. Because you and I are bombarded with things to demand our attention and rob our affection. I close with this. There are some things that in and of themselves, in fact, Paul addressed this in, in Romans and Corinthians, there are some things that are not sin, but to you can become sin. Anything that controls you. I've shared before that as a young man, I was very out of balance with sports, and the only sports I, only sport I liked was hockey. And I played it all the time. Street hockey, ice hockey when I could. 
And I became such a devout Philadelphia Flyers fan that when they would lose, and I didn't tell anyone, certainly as a teenager, you're not going to tell anybody this, but when they lost, I'd start tearing up. I I would cry. And I I made sure nobody saw me. Now, I know that's ridiculous, and I know that you're thinking, "Ah, what? What kind of? And I realized that I had gotten so, hockey meant more to me, and the Flyers meant more to me. It was a God. And so as a young Christian, that was one of the things that I had to just give over to God. And so for many years, I abstained. Now I believed, now I've, I started watching again. You can keep an eye out for me. You keep an eye on your pastor. If, you, if there's ever a big game, the Flyers game, and I'm not here to preach, you better send someone to my house, okay? You know, and check it out. Uh, but I believe, you know, it's again, hockey's not wrong. Baseball's not wrong. Some of these sports aren't wrong. But boy, can they be a God in America. Anything can. Folks, God wants our heart. He wants our devotion. Let's make sure He has it. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. As we close up this book, we are reminded that it is all about the one true God. The one true God who lives in us, we in Him. And Father, I pray that You would help us to worship the one true God. And that anything that has taken the place on our heart, anything that has taken over and gained our affection away from You, Father, may You reclaim the throne of our hearts, even tonight, as we bow before You. Father, we, even now, and things You would put on our heart, things that maybe we weren't conscious of, but if we'd be honest, we'd say that has replaced You. So, Father, tonight, we take those things off the throne of our heart, We put you back on there. Father, now help us to apply that. Make necessary changes so that you are the priority in our life because you alone are worthy. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.